Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Or as I was reminded this last Thursday at Young Mary's group, maybe open your Bible app to John chapter 13. I want to read from verse 1 through verse 17. This is the word of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wiped them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed his feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you again this morning for bringing us together and continuing to unify our hearts and even our lives around your purpose for your praise. You've been very, very good to us, Lord. You continue to be very, very good to us. You have Certainly you have called us out from darkness into your marvelous light so that we might declare your many excellencies to each other and, of course, to the world at large. You are very good to us, Father, in that 
you are changing us, you are shaping us, you are forming us, you are transforming us more and more into the likeness of your Son so that the things that He deems important are becoming more and more important to us. The the things He values are becoming greater values for us. The things He does are beginning to instruct our doing. Indeed, You are restoring us into the very image of God in which we were created. Thank you for your word. You're very, very good to us in giving us your word and giving us the opportunity to learn from it day by day and week by week. And we pray now that as we open our Bibles that you would open us to it so that we would not only learn your word or listen to your word or speak your word, but in fact that we would become doers of it. So will you help us this morning for Jesus' sake and for the advance of his reign in each of our lives and in our communities and in our world. We pray it through him who is our Lord. Amen. The date was uh, July 1st, 1990. It was a Sunday, the day before my team and I uh, were to board a 747 to Europe. We had each, we had been with each other for over two weeks. Before that, we didn't know each other at all. There were about 90 of us in total, mostly high school students from across the United States and Canada. We were in a small town at this time, just outside of Chicago. God had brought us together. We had learned and trained together, and now we were about to board a jet bound for another continent where we would spend the next four weeks together sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That particular Sunday was a very special one for me because uh, I took part in something that I had never experienced before. And quite honestly, I have never experienced since. At least not to that degree. Not in that way. We had an all-day church service. All day. I kid you not. All-day church service. Singing and praying and learning from God's word in the morning. Food and outdoor fellowship through the afternoon. And then in the evening, we came together to share communion. And after communion, to my surprise, we proceeded to wash each other's feet. Our team leader, Greg, he had taken us to an upper room and explained that he didn't want anything standing between us and the Lord or between us and each other that might hinder our relationships and our ministry. And so it was a final opportunity 
he said, to make any restitution before leaving for Europe. It went on, it went on for over three hours. There were 90 of us, after all. There was confession. There was forgiveness. There was restitution and reconciliation. There were tears and praises had by all. It truly was one of those otherworldly experiences. It was a turning point for us, for me. No longer were we in it for ourselves. No longer were we in it for ourselves. From that point on, we were united to one another in love and purpose. By the time we landed at Heathrow, we were chomping at the bit. We'd become servants. And we were excited. We couldn't wait to share Jesus and serve others in his name. In coming to John 13, we come to a similar turning point. Now mere hours from his crucifixion, Jesus has gathered his disciples one last time to share one last meal and communicate some lasting truths. John spends five chapters, think about this with me, John spends five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, detailing just these final few hours. That may not seem noteworthy at first, but then consider that he spends just one chapter describing uh, Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, and the mockery of two trials he endured. He spends just one chapter describing the crucifixion itself. He spends just one chapter on the day of Christ's resurrection. But he spends five full chapters on these final few hours. These are Christ's last words before his death. These chapters and last words are lasting words. This is the hinge point in the Gospel of John, and the pace slows considerably. Christ's public interactions have come to an end, and from this point forward, everything becomes much more private and personal. John is deliberate wanting us to pay close attention, not wanting us to miss a single thing. And so he begins by describing an event that set the stage, I think, for all that followed, how Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Here we learn of our need to be cleansed by Christ and to conduct ourselves in this world accordingly our need to be cleansed by Christ and to conduct ourselves in this world accordingly. So I just want to take it in three basic parts. What Jesus does, what Jesus says, and what Jesus expects of us. What Jesus does, what Jesus says, 
and what Jesus expects of us. First, what Jesus does. Verses 1 and 2 provide some context, both general and specific. In general, we see the love of Jesus for his own in this world that's demonstrated not only here in the foot washing, but really that epitomized his entire life and ministry. More specifically, we're told that it's Passover, this annual Jewish feast which Jesus was sharing with his disciples. They're in a home in Jerusalem, in the upper room of a home that they've either borrowed or rented. It's just him and them. It's a very intimate gathering. These are his close friends. However, John is sure to note in verse 2 that he notes the presence of opposition in the room, spiritual opposition, in that the devil had already persuaded Judas to betray Jesus. Though Satan was scheming against Christ, verse 3 reveals that Jesus is supreme. That the Father had given to the Son divine authority over all things, that all things were given by God to Christ. Jesus knew this. Just as he knew that he was from God and was returning to God, which alludes to this relationship he shared with God as God from eternity past. He knew that he was on mission. He knew he'd come from God. He knew he was going to God. He knew that he was on mission. This mission to serve and save flawed and fallen people from their sins and to forever restore them to their heavenly Father. And so we have in verse 3 the divine... Jeff talks about paradox. We have in verse 3 the divine power, this divine authority of Christ. But then look at verse 4 where we see this divine humility. Listen for both as I read it again, verse 3 and 4. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, and He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. The laying aside of these outer garments pictures the incarnation itself. How Jesus, being God, temporarily laid aside His rights as God by coming from heaven to earth, essentially making Himself nothing. Uh, he whom the angels worship night and day, who commands creation, who sustains the entire universe every second of every day, freely stripped Himself of, his full, of the full glory of His everlasting deity. The taking of the towel, the tying it around his waist, uh, the fastening it to himself. I think it pictures not just that Jesus did acts of service, but he actually became a servant. 
In fact, elsewhere, Jesus himself says that he came not to be served, but to serve and ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many. This picture develops in verse 5 for the pouring of water and the personal touch of Christ upon his disciples, I think, points directly to the cross. He pours water into a basin now, just as he poured himself out for them and will die in their stead in a matter of mere hours. He washes their feet with the water now, just as he cleanses his people from their sin with his own blood. His atoning sacrifice on their behalf. And so we have in verses 1 through 5 a a divine dramatization of the redemptive work of Christ. It's, It's really quite striking. And it's a truth that's further developed in verses 6 through 11. Now, it was customary in those days, in that day, that guests should, upon their arrival, have their feet washed by the servant of the house. The roads were dusty, there were animals everywhere. And there were traces of animals everywhere, if you know what I'm talking about. And so the washing of feet was a particularly humble task. In fact, only the, low, the, the lowest of servants were expected to perform it. The meal gets underway. None of his disciples have volunteered for this job. Remember, it's just them and Jesus. And certainly, certainly this would not be expected of them. Apparently, apparently they had already decided they'd rather have dirty feet than get stuck washing feet. Somewhere during supper, Jesus did for them what they would not even consider for a moment doing for each other. How awkward this must have been. How embarrassing. I imagine an uncomfortable quiet in that upper room, the kind of quiet that one doesn't look forward to but wants to escape as quickly as possible. Undoubtedly, all could hear the pouring of the water and the movements of Jesus as he went from person to person. Even at just five minutes per person, this would have taken over an hour. Imagine the nervous fidgeting, the blank stares the tight and tense reactions. Imagine if if I were to come to you even right now and kneel before you and remove your shoes right now and wash your feet. I'm not going to do that. But imagine 
It's no wonder. It's no wonder that Peter resists, right? What Jesus was doing was completely beneath him. It was beneath them all, but especially Jesus. He is, after all, the divine Son of God, the preeminent one. So when Jesus comes to Peter in verse 6, Peter speaks out against this apparent injustice, this great tragedy, or, or travesty, this great travesty. He's incredulous. Lord, do you wash my feet? Or maybe it was, Lord? You're washing my feet? Jesus says to him, I know you don't understand. Now you will. But Peter's not persuaded. And so he ups the intensity in verse 8. Lord, you will never wash my feet. I won't allow it. This is so far beneath you, Jesus. It's unacceptable. To which Jesus replies, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I'll pause for a moment. I think this is key. What's Jesus saying here? If, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. He's connecting his doing with their belonging, right? What he does for them will bring them into relationship with him, a place of acceptance and belonging. He's hinting here at something profound, but clearly we're now getting a clue that he's talking about something far more than washing feet. And this wins Peter over, though I don't think he really grasped what Jesus was conveying yet. But, he, but Peter, to his credit, genuinely desired Christ. Peter wanted to be with Christ. Peter wanted to share in the life of Christ. And so in typical Peter-like fashion, he blurts out in verse 9, Well then, Lord, not only my feet, wash also my, my hands and my head. He wanted, he wanted Jesus to wash even more of him because he wanted even more of Jesus. You see that? But Jesus isn't talking about simply being washed externally, but also about being cleansed internally, which I think becomes clear in verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, 
but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So here's the point, I think. Once you have been cleansed by Christ, you are clean. And already these men had been cleansed, apparently, in the spiritual sense. Already they had been bathed in this way. In fact, according to Jesus here, already they were completely clean. And this already applied to them all with one notable exception. Not all were clean, as Jesus notes in verse 11. Judas wasn't. His feet may have been washed. His feet may have been washed externally, but his heart was still very dirty because he had already decided in his heart to betray Jesus. And because he had decided already in his heart to betray Jesus, no amount of external washing would remove the internal stain. I think that's what's going on here. You see, now stay with me, the foot washing itself is not the focus. It's like a sign. It's like a sign pointing to something greater. The foot washing itself is not the focus. The focus is what it communicates. You see, the Savior didn't come to wash dirty feet. The Savior came to wash uh, the guilt and pollution of dirty souls. And so the first point of application here for us today, especially on this side of the cross, knowing all that we do is to allow Christ's foot washing to bring you to the foot of the cross. In just a few short hours, Jesus would be whipped, beaten, Nailed to a cross to bear the sins of the world before the sun set again, he would breathe his last tortured breath, having borne all that is wicked and evil and unclean in the world to cleanse all who trust in him and to cleanse them completely. Once he washes you, from the inside out, you are completely clean. The stain of sin upon your life is removed for good, spiritually speaking. Though your sins are as scarlet apart from Christ, you are made white as snow in Christ. He took your sins upon himself on the cross and died for you. And he gives you his righteousness instead so that you may live in him. This is why the Bible can make such unbelievable claims like there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's such good news. Not a. None. Zip. He who was rich became poor so that you, though poor, might become rich in God. However, I think what we see here 
is that reconciliation to God is both an event and a process. Basically, the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is basically the event by which the righteousness and riches of Christ are applied to you. The event by which you are forever saved from sin and death to life with God. The event by which you are born again and become a child of God. The event by which you are held secure in Christ forevermore. It's done. And running parallel to this event of justification is the process of sanctification. Although you are already saved from sin's penalty once and forever, sanctification is basically the process by which you are continually being saved from sin's power over your life. Glorification, by the way, is being saved from sin's presence. And I think that's what Jesus is hinting at here. Once you have been cleansed by Christ, you are clean. You've been bathed and do not need to wash except your feet, meaning, I think, in this analogy, that your day-to-day comings and goings. You don't need this radical new cleansing, but rather you need a daily cleansing from the ongoing contaminating effects of sin. And so we have, for example, in places like 1 John, we have in the very first chapter, John the Apostle, the same author here, saying to us that we can be confident that we have been cleansed, that we are thoroughly, completely cleansed by the blood of Christ. And then he says in two verses later, he says, however, uh, confess your sins often, regularly, because God desires to continue to forgive and to continue to cleanse cleanse you from the the daily uh, contaminants of sin and its effects. So his cleansing is both complete and continual. That's the point Jesus seems to be making here. And so if, Jesus, if what Jesus does in verses 1 through 5 alludes to the cross, and what he says in verses 6 through 11 explains the cross, then what he expects of us in verses 12 through 17 makes perfect sense because of the cross. Verse 12, he begins to apply these things. He clothes himself again and he takes his place at the table and he asks his disciples if they understand what he's done for them. And and John doesn't record how they respond or even if they respond at all, only Jesus speaks. And then beginning in verse 13 through 15, he makes clear what he expects. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also are to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you.
Jesus is teaching a very important principle here, so important, hang with me, that the application of this single principle will not only change your life, but will also bring change to the lives of those around you. The integration of this single principle, by integration I mean that it becomes a, daily, a, a regular part of your daily routine. The integration of this all-important principle literally has the power and potential to change the world. I'm not speaking in hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. The integration of this single all-important principle literally has the power and potential to change the world. What Jesus is teaching right here is a principle so important that if you apply it personally, it will change the way you think, it will change the way you speak, it will change the way you act, it will change the way you perceive your life and the lives of those people in your life. The principle is this. Live and love like Jesus. See, you were waiting for something profound. But the beauty of it is it's simple. Live and love like Jesus. Jesus is making a very clear connection between our words and our actions. Essentially, he's saying actions speak louder than words. He could have just taught about service. Oh, but it meant so much more. It was so much more powerful when he kneeled before them and served them. He's connecting what we say with what we do. If we say that Jesus is Lord, then act accordingly. If you say, if you profess with your words to follow Christ, follow Christ. Far too many people Say one thing and do another. Jesus doesn't like that. So he clarifies what it means to follow him, to be a disciple. True disciples, he says, follow Christ, follow his example. In response to what Jesus has done for them, they do for others in his name. And then he gives these two quick analogies in verse 16. He speaks about a servant and a messenger. And just as a servant is not greater than its master, or a messenger is not greater than the one sending the message, neither is the Christian greater than Christ. In other words, if King Christ will gladly humble himself in service to another and even wash their feet, so should we. Because we are servants and messengers of Christ. To love or, or to live and love like Jesus will change 
your marriage. As husbands and wives, having the mind of Christ, humble themselves to metaphorically wash each other's feet. To live and love like Jesus will change your family. As parents and children and brothers and sisters, having the mind of Christ, humble themselves as He did. To live and love like Jesus will change your work relationships. As employers and employees and co-workers, having the mind of Christ humble themselves as he did. To live and love like Jesus will change your school relationships. As teachers and students and peers, having the mind of Christ, humble themselves as he did. To live and love like Jesus will change your neighborhoods, your communities. As you come together and with the mind of Christ, you humble yourself like He did. And so our youth group from this church goes out yesterday. They want to serve. This is something they thought about two months ago and they've been planning ever since and they want to serve. And they do serve to try to bring change, some evidence that Jesus is present in this community. To live and love like Jesus will change your church. Our church. In fact, in these verses, Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples about their service to one another. They're to wash one another's feet. That means fellow believers. That means fellow Christ followers, fellow Christians. In today's context, it means members of the church. It means members of the congregation. It means looking across the room and saying, having the mind of Christ, how can I wash that person's feet? This is hard. It's usually, not always, not always, but it's usually much easier to serve people you don't know. Because the very fact you don't know them and they don't know you kind of levels the playing field. But when you know someone and you know their failures and you know their weakness and you've even seen their sin, that's harder. When they know you, they know your weakness. 
They know your failures. They've seen your sin. That's even harder. Because it requires an obvious vulnerability on both sides. It is, like Jesus, a laying down of your rights. It's hard to be vulnerable, to serve like this. In fact, in Luke's account of this meal, the disciples are actually arguing over who's the greatest. Maybe it started with one of them. I'm speculating. Maybe it started with one of them asking, who's going to wash feet? All right, guys, who's washing feet today? Not me. Well, certainly not me. That's not my job. They quibble. And then maybe it escalates. <laughs> and, and if you've been in these situations, you know how easily things can escalate. And suddenly it turns into a I'm better than you discussion. You know, you, know, you, never, you may never say those words, but you certainly adopt that posture. And maybe they began establishing a pecking order. And started to rank each other. You ever, well, just in your mind, you sometimes say, oh, I'm going to rank these folks, and I kind of fall right here, and these are here, and maybe there's one or two up here, but there's this ranking process going on. You're sizing each other up. They're posturing for position. And then maybe it was then, maybe it was then when Jesus stood and he removed his garments and he grabbed the towel and some water. And one by one he went to them and kneeled before them. And did for them what they would not even conceive of doing for each other. Now listen, these weren't outright pagans. These weren't the, the heathen over there. These weren't these deep sinners somewhere out there. Outside the church. These were followers of Christ. They were fellow believers. They literally became the church. These were the people on whom the church was established. So just don't think for a moment that we're somehow immune from their pride and posturing. We're not. We are susceptible to rankings, to sizing each other up, to establishing pecking order, to arguing over who's better. Again, we'll never say the words. We're not that bold, unless maybe in private. But we certainly think it. 
And Jesus says to all of us in this room, if you call me Lord, you're right. You're right to call me Lord. So if I, your Lord, have served you, let me make this very clear, he says, if I have served you, I expect you to serve each other. We'll talk more about this next week, but if Jesus can wash even the feet of his betrayer, can we not wash the feet of our fellow believers? And then we close with verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you stop and study them some more. Blessed are you if you gather people together and make plans and uh, learn the hidden Greek meaning of this. Blessed are you if you uh, form ministry teams and committees around the idea of serving. I don't know. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The key to experiencing this blessing from Jesus is to bless others in his name. To serve them just as he's served you. And so the basics to a blessed life, according to this passage, is to be cleansed by Christ. Begins there. And to conduct yourself accordingly. to be loved by Jesus and then to live and love like Jesus. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Amen. God, thank you for this amazing, truly amazing scene. We are now blessed to see and contemplate and, and glean from. Thank you for this Jesus, not the Jesus of our own imagination, but this Jesus, the biblical Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Will you make us more like this Jesus? Moment by moment, 
in the little things, the daily things. Would you increase our love for Jesus and help us to love each other because of Jesus and in his name. Thank you for these folks who call East Parkway Church their home. Thank you that I am blessed, truly blessed, to share life and ministry with them. Thank you for the many examples we have seated in this room who have put this principle into practice. Continue to do your work for your glory through Christ. Amen.